Uh, today we're going to continue in the book of Acts. We've been through the first 18 chapters. We started a year ago, January. We've taken a few breaks, uh, but we're going to continue in the book of Acts in chapter 19 here in just a few minutes. I want to bring your attention to this that's in your bulletin. Uh, how many of you have ever been to a textathon before? Let me see your hands. That's right, neither have we. Uh, but we're going to have one. We're going to have one. Uh, what we're doing here, folks, is we're trying to help raise money for the Parkville Women's Clinic. And um, they do a great ministry there uh, for young ladies who are having uh, in, in some kind of a pregnancy crisis. They do a great and, and just a fantastic ministry, and we want to help raise some money for them. So a week from Friday night, uh, we're going to do it kind of like a telethon. If you guys uh, kind of remember like the old Jerry Lewis telethon, we're going to have a, 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 just an evening of entertainment, and we'll have some tables up at the front. And at those tables, um, we will have some scripts. And um, there will be a place where you can just text your friends while we're here and say, hey, I'm at a fundraiser. I wonder if you would consider uh, giving a donation to the Parkville Women's Clinic. If so, click on this link. And then you'll, you'll basically uh, copy and paste that and send it to your friends on your phone or on Facebook or whatever. And um, they'll get a chance to, if they click on that thing, it'll go to a page where they can donate right there. So we want to raise some money uh, that evening for the Parkville Women's Clinic. A really great, worthy cause. So if you can be here, please be here and uh, bring your phone, and we will see what God can do through us. Well, as I said, we've been through the first 18 uh, books of the book of Acts, or chapters of the book of Acts. And uh, if you've missed those, you can go to our uh, website at uh, fogkc.com. And uh, look up any of those that you'd like to see. Uh, but we're going to start here uh, with today's sermon, which is titled The Gospel in Ephesus. We see here that Paul has started his third missionary journey. Of course, we saw uh, last week the entire review from the church in Jerusalem to the church at Antioch to Paul's first two missionary journeys. And now he's starting his third missionary journey. And he goes to this city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a, an ancient Greek city in what is present-day Turkey. And uh, it came under the control of the Romans in 129 B.C. And it's the third it was the third largest city in what was then uh, kind of the area or what we would probably use as the, the term as country of uh, Asia Minor. Uh, Asia was not considered a continent at that time. It was really an area or a country, if you think of it that way. And Ephesus was really known for having the temple of Artemis. Uh, it was famous for this, and, and the Roman name is Diana. Uh, and this particular uh, building was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, now this is actually a replica of the building that actually now stands in present-day Turkey uh, as a museum uh, to the city of Ephesus. Now, we don't really know too much about kind of the cult following of Artemis, uh, but what we do know is that she was the daughter, or supposed daughter of Zeus and Leto, and the twin sister of Apollo. And she was the goddess of hunting and wild animals, as well as later being uh, supposedly the god of virginity and childbirth. Now, I think the fact that she was the god of both wild animals and childbirth was probably a coincidence, but you who are parents know the, the correlation there, right? Uh, so anyway, this is the, kind of the, the setting of the city of Ephesians. And the city was very proud, very proud of its uh, 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 being this home, this world-class uh, home of Artemis worship. And so that's kind of the backdrop of what happens here. So let's get started. We've got a lot of ground to cover here in this chapter of Acts. So let's get started. First thing we see is that the gospel spreads in Ephesus. Let's look at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Here's what it says. 
says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, I know it's a little bit confusing because it starts out by saying that these men were disciples. Remember the word disciple can be uh, really, it's, it's, a, it's a word of follower. It's somebody who is a follower. And so these men were followers. And Paul said, well, are you followers of Jesus? And they said, no, we're, we're followers of John, John the Baptist. And, and here's why that is, folks. Uh, this, these waves... Okay, so if you think about here, uh, uh, John the Baptist started preaching this, this baptism, this, uh, this uh, baptism of repentance. He said, hey, turn from your sins and turn to the Lord. And that begins to spread out kind of in a circle. Now, it wasn't a perfect circle, I'm sure, but if we just think that way. Behind, Paul, behind John came Jesus, and he started his ministry. Then that began to come out and kind of follow that same pattern, but still behind uh, later, three and a half years later, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus took place, which began and followed that same thing. So there's always these kind of concentric circles of information that's moving out. And of course, this was not a day where technology was available, so it was all moving by word of mouth and by people just talking about it and telling these things. Uh, so this is how movement is followed. So what had happened was this concentric circle of John teaching that the Savior is coming had reached Ephesus. But not yet had the message reached Ephesus that the Savior had indeed come. And so Paul meets these guys, their, their uh, uh, followers, and Paul says, hey, did you did you the Spirit when you believed in Jesus? They said, well, we don't, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. We didn't even know there is one. And Paul's like, well, well then how, who were you baptized into? What were you baptized into? They said, we were baptized into John's baptism. We, we believe that God was saying, repent from your sins, turn from your sins, and turn to God, and that's what we're following. And Paul says, oh, okay, so that's the, that's the circle that's reached you so far, but let me tell you something. Uh, what John was saying would take place has taken place. And so he preached the gospel of Jesus to them. He told them that they were sinners, that they indeed really couldn't totally turn from their sins, and that they needed a Savior that Jesus had died on the cross for them and that they could put their faith and trust in Jesus to forgive their sins. As soon as these men heard that, they gave their lives to Christ. They were baptized into Jesus' baptism. They were baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we see now that this, the gospel had actually now reached Ephesus and now it was beginning to spread through Ephesus. And we see here, folks, that Paul uh, does this incredibly strategic thing that he does in every city, evangelism. He tells people about Jesus. You know why these people became followers of Christ? Yeah, I know God's involved in this and the Spirit's working. I got it all that. But one of the reasons, one of the very important key factors is that somebody decided to tell them. Paul was there, ready to share the gospel, and he did. And they received Christ and became the believers of Jesus. 
The reason they weren't before is that it simply hadn't gotten to them yet. There was no other reason than that. What happens then? Well, like Paul always does, after he does strategic evangelism, what does he do? He disciples the teachable. Look in Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So let's just take this piece by piece and look and see what Paul did. So first, he went to the synagogue and he preached uh, for three months. But keep in mind, they only came to the synagogue once a week. So Paul was preaching once a week the gospel of Jesus to the Jews who were coming to the synagogue. And it's said that during that month, those th- uh, three months, uh, some believed, some became disciples. But some, the more they heard it, the harder they were towards the gospel. The more they said they didn't want it. The more they said, get out of here, Paul. We're, we're tired of hearing this. And at some point, three months... Paul said, okay, you guys have heard it. You've heard it over and over and over and over. I'm done with you. I'm moving on. And he took those who had believed, and he took them across the street or wherever it was. We don't really know where it was. uh, To this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. Now, I know it sounds like, you know, some kind of dinosaur museum or something. The the Hall of Tyrannosaurus Rex. That's what it sounds like to me. Uh, But we don't really know what that was. We don't, it may be a school of philosophy, but, but there's just really no information on this, uh, this teaching place of Tyrannus uh, that we can really know that for sure. But what's interesting is Paul didn't just preach once a week. He taught daily. For how long? Two years. He was discipling them. These new believers that had given their lives to Christ, he was now saying, I've evangelized, I've evangelized, I've evangelized. Some are believing, some aren't. I'm going to let those who've chosen not to follow, not follow. But I'm going to take these who are now invested in Christ, and I'm going to teach them. I'm going to invest my life in them. And I'm going to spend two years doing that. Listen, folks, when we are discipling people, and we feel like, man, I just don't feel like we've gotten anywhere in the last two months. (laughs) Don't, Don't despair every day. And if you realize that it took Paul really 700-some days to disciple these people every day. That's just a lot of investment to disciple people, folks. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it, but this is a long process. This is a long process. If we think back to the Great Commission, you know, Jesus tells us not to just baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but then do what? Teach them to obey everything that he's commanded. Everything. Well, that takes a long time. So discipling people is not a, it's not a 20 lesson series. It's not a 14 week uh, 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 lesson or plan or, or class. It's years of investment in others. And so uh, I think it's important for us to realize that that's the kind of investment Paul made as he ministered to these people and as he discipled them. Uh, I also want you to see in this passage that it's, uh, uh, let me go back here. You know, we went through that uh, um, series a few weeks back about 
Uh, God's not dead too. You know, we talked about how it's important to understand not only the gospel, but how to reason with people, how to talk to people about the gospel, how to help them understand the gospel. Uh, We see here that Paul spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them. Okay? Now, it's important for us to understand, we can't talk anybody into the kingdom of heaven. We can't talk anybody into God's kingdom. But we can reason and persuade them. We can have intelligent conversations about the resurrection of Jesus that make sense to people who are searching for real truth. And so Paul did this. He was very good at it. And he he talked a lot of people into at least being open to the gospel where God could then, then work in their hearts. We need to be good at this. And so we see that Paul's doing two things all the time. What is he doing? He's evangelizing and discipling. Evangelizing and discipling. Evangelizing and discipling. What do you think we should be spending our time doing? Don't say this, but you guys are a lot smarter than the first group today, okay? That was great. You caught on very quickly. Exactly, folks. I mean, that's what we should be doing. Every single person in this room, if they are a believer in Jesus Christ, they should be having somebody on their radar that they're attempting to share the gospel with. They should be having somebody on their radar that they are attempting to invest their life in. Look, if you've been a Christian, you say, well, I've only been a Christian a week. Okay, find somebody who's been a Christian four days and invest in them. You're, you're far, way farther down the path than they are. You see what I'm saying? Listen, uh, We all need to be doing this, folks. It's the thing that God wants us to be invested in. We see then that Paul's gift of healing is known. Is known and it's also shown. Look at verses 11 and 12. So then God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Wow. Wow. This is the real deal, folks. I mean, this is the real, real deal of healing. Now, we have uh, just preached uh, a sermon on our personal shape and how God has wired each of us and how he's given each believer spiritual gifts. Uh, We are starting tonight at six o'clock right in this room, a series on teaching through spiritual gifts and what they are, what they mean, what they look like, how you can discover yours, all those kinds of things. And tonight, one of the ones that we're going to be talking about is the spiritual gift of healing. Uh, but let me just point out what's happening here. Even articles of clothing that had touched Paul's skin were taken to the sick and the possessed. And if you notice what it says here, and I want to point out the wording very carefully, uh, aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That's an inclusive statement. That means every one of them. It doesn't say some or few or partially. It means that every single person that was given one of these articles of clothing that had a disease or was demon-possessed was immediately and instantly healed completely. Folks, this is just the working of God. It's nothing else. Now, I, as we teach here about these spiritual gifts, and, and we believe that this happened exactly like it says, uh, there's no misunderstanding, there's no exaggeration. This is what God was doing uh, at, at this time in history and on a pretty large scale at this time in history. 
uh, what we see uh, is that those miraculous gifts have minimized throughout history. And the, the non-miraculous or serving and speaking gifts that are non-miraculous have really become uh, more prevalent. In fact, you see that even through the book of Acts. Uh, but today, I don't know if you've ever been in the South on a Sunday morning and turned on a television, but there's like uh, 162 TV evangelists uh, on, on television in the South uh, on a Sunday morning. And some of them, uh, you can even uh, you know, turn to their, their station and you'll see down at the bottom, you can, you can buy one of these handkerchiefs. For $24.95, you can just send $24.95 to this guy. He'll pray over this handkerchief and bless it and send it to you for healing. Now, folks, uh, I don't want to tell you what God can or can't do, does or doesn't do, but I don't see Paul charging $24.95. Do you see that anywhere? Paul wasn't gaining anything from this. He was, he, he was allowing this to take place to lift up the name of Jesus. He was allowing this to take place so that the validity of the gospel which he was preaching would be accepted. He wasn't doing this for any personal gain. I would be cautious, very, very cautious of those who personally gain from any spiritual gift or the using of it. Enough said. We see then after this that the false believers are at risk of satanic attacks. This is a very interesting passage here. Look in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 17. Here's what it says. It says, Then some of the itinerant Jews, uh, Jewish exorcists, uh, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or lifted up or, or, or made famous. That's what that means. So here's kind of the story. These unbelievers were trying to use the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached about, as a means of personal gain somehow. Either money or power or influence or, or something. They were being, wanting to be seen as powerful like Paul, doing these really cool miraculous things like Paul. So they, uh, seven sons of a high priest uh, go into this man who's obviously demon-possessed, and they say, they say this, uh, the Jesus whom Paul preaches, uh, come, out of the, come out of this guy. Now, I can't do this really scary. I wish I could do this really scary. Kind of freak you out a little bit. But, but then this demon-possessed man looked at him and he said, Jesus I know. Paul, I, I know him too. I recognize him. But who are you? Life's real scary. Now, I got to be honest with you. If I was one of those seven guys, I wouldn't have had to take a beating. I would have ran like crazy out of that room. But then what happened was this guy beats them to a pulp. He tears their clothes off and beats all seven of them up at the same time. And what it says is out of this whole situation, what happens? God gets glory. 
because people hear this story. Now listen, if this had happened two weeks ago in downtown Parkville, we'd probably all be talking about it, wouldn't we? I mean, did you hear what happened? Did you see what was in the Parkville paper? If there is a Parkville paper, I don't know if there is one. Did you see what was on the internet? Did you read that? That was crazy. We'd all be talking about it, and they were all talking about it too. But what was happening was they were, they were seeing the real true meaning of what was happening. They're like, wow, you don't want to mess. You don't want to mess with this stuff about Jesus unless you really believe it. Because these guys were trying to use Jesus for their personal gain. Now, I know all of us in this room, we're way above anything ever like that. We would never, ever think of doing anything like that. But I've talked to people before that choose their church based on its size because they want to make sure they have uh, uh, the maximum amount of contacts for their life insurance business. Or people who make decisions about who uh, uh, their friends are at church and who they want to pal around with and, and connect with because they have some kind of influence or power. Folks, Jesus is not to be used for our personal gain. He, he's, he's only to be uh, used for his own glorification. The things that Paul was doing were not to, to bring something to him, but to lift Jesus up, to make him famous in the world. But when these guys decided they were going to do this in a self-serving way, they took a beating for it. And we don't have a report of this, but I'll bet you they never did that again. I'll bet you they never did that again. By the way, I want to bring your attention. Last week when we were reviewing, we talked about the three growth reports in the book of Acts, about how the, the church grows numerically, how it grows uh, spiritually, and how it grows geographically. And we see right at the end of this uh, passage, uh, no, it's on the next passage. Right. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm so excited. All right. Uh, so anyway, this is what we see here happening. Now look what happens after this. True, re- true believers repent from their sin. True believers repent from their sin. Look at Acts 19, 18 through 20. We just saw how those who don't truly believe were reacting and using Jesus for their own personal gain, some of them anyway. Now we see how true believers respond. Look at this. It says, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What the true believers did was they began purging their lives of sinful things. They began to say, you know, now that I've decided to follow Jesus, I need to get this stuff about Artemis out of my house. Uh, these, these, these books on magical sorcery stuff that, that I've been doing, I need to get it out of my life. They were making these kind of decisions. I think we can take a lesson from them, folks. Is it possible? Now, now I'm going to assume that probably nobody here has a statue of Artemis in your living room. I would, I would bet on that. But I wonder if we might have some kind of idols in our lives that take away our time and energy and effort from the kingdom of God. Whenever I think about this passage or one like it, I think of my sister's room when I was a teenager and how she worshipped Donny Osmond. (laughs) 
because his picture was everywhere. And by the way, if that's your, if that's your idol you need to purge, you need to purge it this afternoon, okay? <laughs> you just need to get that out of your life. Now, that's, that's funny, I think. But, but listen, is it possible that for some of us, the television, Facebook, the internet, whatever it is, that some of those things in our life have really gotten a hold of our heart more than we want to let on, more than we really care to admit. Now, as enlightened and intelligent people, what do we do? We say, let's, let's minimize our time. I'm going to cut myself down to only 30 hours of television a week. I'm going to cut myself down. I'm going to cut myself down a little bit. Uh, not let it become that idol. Folks, that's not the strategy these people took. They didn't say, I'm, I'm going I'm to do this stuff less. They said, I'm going to get out of my life. And by the way, they didn't bring it all to the church and have a rummage sale and sell it to their neighbors. They destroyed it. They got rid of it. They made sure that it wasn't going to bother anybody else. They didn't even care about the financial loss. They just let it go. Now, here's the growth report that I was so excited about. You see right here it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Folks, the word of God does not increase. It is, it is all of the truth of the universe, and it's, 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 got a, it's final. Why was it increasing? Why does this passage say Because in the lives of these people who were giving up their idols and giving up the things that had, 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 had taken them away from God, the word of God was increasing in them. The word of God was growing in them. Because Christianity is a replacement process. You take out the junk that's there and God fills it with his spirit and with his word. And so we see this happening in the lives of these people because they were true believers. We'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. After this, we see that the gospel threatens the financial gain of idols or more, more accurately, those who were making the idols. Look at verses 21 through 27. So now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, which is, I guess, where you get furniture. Come on, that was good. Come on, that was good. And go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus... But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." 
Wow. Demetrius had one thing on his mind, losing his livelihood. Demetrius was angry at Paul and the gospel because what was happening was people were turning away from buying idols. And this is how he made his money. He's manufacturing idols. So he gets all the guys together, probably the, the union of idol workers, and got them all together and said, guys, we've got to stop this thing. Paul and these guys with him are preaching this gospel about Jesus. People are turning away from worshiping uh, Artemis. They're not going to be buying idols anymore. In fact, they're getting rid of, some of them are getting rid of the ones they already have. What are we going to do? How are we going to make money? This is personally hurting us. And by the way, Paul's running around the country saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. We've got to do something about this. We're going to lose our lucrative business. How are we going to provide for our families? He was not really worried about uh, worshiping the true God if he thought Artemis was such. He was really worried about his pocketbook. And that was it. We don't see in this guy Demetrius any questioning of whether or not Paul's uh, message of the gospel was true or that it might possibly be true. He was simply saying, this is affecting me personally in a negative way, so we have to put a stop to it. So what takes place? After he starts getting these guys all riled up, they begin to worry about now their uh, lucrative business. They begin to worry about their livelihood. They get them all stirred up into a group, and what happens? The riot of Ephesus reflects the consequences of the gospel. Now look at this passage. It's kind of a long passage, so stay with me. But let's look at this passage and see what happens as an almost riot breaks out in Ephesus. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the, with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. 
since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now Alexander here does a really great job of pouring cold water on this very fiery crowd. He makes a great observation. He said, by the way, guys, Paul and those in his ministry, those traveling with him in his ministry team, they're, they're not seeing how bad Artemis is. They're simply proclaiming Jesus. Now, I think there's a lesson for us here. Perhaps we should spend the majority of our time promoting and preaching about Jesus and not just trying to tear down other false thinking. Now, here's how this plays out in real life. I, uh, over the course of years, have had a great opportunity to speak with people of other religions, other faiths, e- even those that are on the, on the kind of peripheral view of Christianity, but kind of cultic in their view. Those that I try to go and attack their viewpoints, that always just winds up into an argument. It, it, they become defensive. It just is not a good strategy. But those where I stay focused... And I say, let's just talk about who Jesus is. Let's stay focused on Jesus. I don't care if you do that or that right now. Let's just work on, let's just figure out Jesus. If I can get them there and we can talk about that and and they can come to a place where they understand the gospel and they say, well, I can accept that and they give their lives to Jesus, you know what will happen? God will work out that other stuff. They'll figure out over the period of days or weeks or months that what they had been following previously was not correct. I think sometimes we try to do the Holy Spirit's job for him. And it's not our job to change a person's heart. It's our job to speak the truth, to present the gospel, to make it known to them, and then let God do his work. So I think that's a good strategy. And what Alexander was saying was, this is what Paul did. Listen, they're not coming in and saying, hey, we're all going to go to hell because we worship Artemis. They're not saying that Artemis is not a real God and this is just a bunch of hogwash. And they're, they're, just, they're just talking about Jesus. And yet God was changing many hearts. By the way, in this passage, you probably are asking the question. I know I did. What is the sacred stone? We have no idea. Uh, There's really no understanding. It's probably a meteorite that fell somewhere near Ephesus, and they said, oh, look, uh, a rock from a god. Let's put it in the temple. And uh, that's kind of how that kind of false worship goes. Now, listen, we look at these passages, and we see these are historical passages. They're not filled with a lot of doctrine, a lot of doctrinal teaching. There are a lot of uh, just historical facts But I want us to take a couple of uh, uh, really important application points from today's sermon and from this passage. And so the first one is this. The true gospel brings about division, not unity in the world. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. I think for some of us, the notion for desiring world peace as though we were running from Miss Universe or something, folks, we just got to get that out of our heads. That is just not going to happen in our lifetime. It is simply just not going to happen. Unless everybody comes to faith in Christ, this world is not going to see unity. Now, it doesn't mean we don't try to get along with people. I, I, I'm not saying that. But look what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34. 
He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Is Jesus just a troublemaker? Is that what it is? No. Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, folks, what I'm coming to tell you about, the gospel, what I'm coming to share with you, uh, God's love and forgiveness and mercy and grace, is so diametrically opposed to the world's thinking system that they cannot help but clash. What I bring to you in the gospel is so absolutely diametrically opposed to the way the world thinks, the way the world acts, the way the world does things. It can't help but bring about conflict. Now, if we look at the first century Christians and we see Paul in this city, a riot almost breaks out. And there, as, as you remember those first two missionary journeys in several cities, uh, riots did break out. And he had to flee for his life. So in the first century, we see the world and the world system and Christianity and the gospel just banging heads. And for the last 50 years in our country, the gospel and the world have gotten along pretty well. Now, do you suppose that's because the world has become so much more godly and the world has become so much more a reflection of Jesus? I'm like you. I don't suppose that's it. I think what's really happened is the church has become a lot more like the world. Folks, I'm not telling you, let's, let's go out and see if we can make everybody our enemy. I'm not saying that. But Jesus said, guys, they hated me. They're going to hate you. Not because you're an obnoxious jerk, but because the gospel, the truth of the gospel is so diametrically opposed to the thinking of a person who's far from God, they can't help but have conflict. So we need to try to get along with everybody. We need to be, as the scripture says, at peace with everyone as much as it's left up to us. But folks, if we're really living out the gospel, if we are really being the individuals and the church that Jesus has called us to be, the reality is there's going to be conflict with those who are of the world. And that's conflict in your families, conflict in your communities, conflict in our city, and in our world. When we see the things that are going on in the Middle East with Christians being tortured and killed, we shouldn't be surprised by that. That's been going on for 2,000 years, and it's going to keep going on until Jesus comes back. But I start to question when we get along too well with the world, is it the world that we have influenced to be like us or is it us who's slipping into being like them? Just a thought. The other thing I want to bring to your attention today as a way of point of application is that true believers are truly changed. True believers are truly changed. We see those in the city of Ephesus who are giving their lives to Jesus. And they were saying, I have to purge my life of this junk that's in my life. I have to get it out. I have to get rid of it. I have to get totally and completely out of my life. 
I wonder sometimes, as we think about the idols in our lives, if we might rethink our strategy. Because I think what we do is tend to say, yeah, you know, I'm really, uh, my television is my idol. I, I turn it on when I walk in the house. I turn it on when I wake up in the morning. I turn it off last thing before I go to bed. I, it's on all the time. I watch it all day long, whatever, whatever. I need to limit myself to 35 hours a week. That'll help. Maybe, maybe I'll come back to 25 hours a week. That'll, that, then it won't be quite such an idol to me. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying be weird here, but... <laughs> I wonder if maybe we should think a little bit more like the Ephesians and say, if this is an idol for me, I just need to get it out. I don't need a smaller picture of Donny Osmond. I need it out of my life. I just wonder. So as we think about the things that take our time, energy, effort, thoughts away from the kingdom of God, and those things become idols to us, I wonder if our best strategy might be start a fire out back and just put those things in it. Just a thought. Something to think about this week. By the way, check your local laws before you do that. Okay. (laughs) Folks, I'm challenged by these things. I I hope you are. I'm challenged by the things I do with my life, uh, the time that I spend on my phone, playing a game or on Facebook or whatever. I'm being challenged. I hope you are. The kingdom of God has been left in the hands of the church to move forward, as we saw in the very first verse of the book of Acts. We must do that. Think about these things this week. Come back tonight at 6 as we talk about spiritual gifts. And uh, I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that always teaches us and guides us into perfect truth. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us consider our lives. We would see where we fit into the body and, and if we are truly living for you and how that should probably bring about some kind of discomfort with the world. Father, I pray also that you would open our eyes and our hearts to Uh, our own lives and just the things in our lives that are idols that maybe we don't even recognize or realize. God, bring those to our minds. Help us to make decisions that will uh, purge those from our lives, not just minimize them, but purge them from our lives if they keep us from serving you. God, help us to be fully, fully committed to you in a radical way that would prove that we have been changed by you. God, I I just thank you for the way you love us. Help us to always be in all of you and feel as though we owe you because we do. You are the giver of our life and our spiritual life. Help us to really live like that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.